0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. So rather than doing Vacation Bible School and inviting the community to TBC, we want to go into the community and bring the gospel to them. And so that's what happens at Impact. We become a lighthouse. Your house becomes a lighthouse for Christ year-round. You invite the kids in your neighborhood or friends of your kids, they come into your backyard. Our kids, our youth are trained. They go into your backyard and they minister to the kids you invite. And uh, in the last 10 years, almost every year, we've had the opportunity to present the gospel to over a thousand young people each, every, each year. So this is an opportunity for your home to be a lighthouse, it's also a church-wide event. We need uh, drivers, we need folks to come help with food, we need uh, folks to come along and chaperone with kids. And uh, we need host homes. And so we function as a community of believers, as a church to do that. And uh, we can use your gifts, your talents to to serve the Savior. Some of you are wondering, well, in a large church, how to get involved. This is a great entryway into serving the Savior. So let me encourage you to take a look at ways you might get involved in IMPACT. Jim, the next slide for me. Uh, After IMPACT, we've got a missions garage sale coming up. By the way, to register for IMPACT, you can go to Creekside Building or you can go to our website, (coughs) to the hub and sign up there to volunteer in some way. Garage sale coming up April 11 through 14. Everything that happens at our garage sale goes to missions. This year, Chase, it's being split between So some of it's gone to Ukraine. In fact, right now in the Ukraine, we have 400 pastors just attended a conference. And those pastors go out throughout the Ukraine to take the gospel, and you have provided for them and for that. And so to God be the glory. Amen. Great things he's done. So, yeah, amen. So. There's a garage sale, the money that comes in, 100% of that money goes out. You bring your stuff here beginning April 11th. Is that right? And uh, we we need help. We need people to price things, set things up, go retrieve things from homes, et cetera, et cetera. This is another church-wide event. It's a great way to serve our body and to serve missionaries. Some of you say, what can I do? You can pray, you can give, you can go. And this is a way to serve here in our community. And then finally, Monday, Thursday is coming up. Monday, Thursday will be uh, this Thursday. How many of you have been to the Monday, Thursday service that we have done? Let me see your hands. Let me encourage you to come and begin Easter week that way. It's interactive. It's family friendly. If you're in a small group, I would encourage you to bring your small group and come together. I invite you to bring your, uh, your family with you. It's kid friendly and it's a great way to prepare a heart for the Easter weekend season. So uh, you see all the stuff in the bulletin, a lot happening this week. John chapter six. John chapter six. A day to remember. Father, as we open the word, we thank you for Uh worshiping in song. We thank you for the work of this body in our community to reach others with the gospel. And now as we look at this day to remember, we look at who our Savior is, would you teach us? Spirit, Holy Spirit, you guide us into truth in Christ's name, amen. A day to remember. Every generation is a day to remember. For our older saints here, maybe it was Pearl Harbor when you were a kid. For my generation as baby boomers, it was when? What's a day that we'll never forget? The assassination of John F. Kennedy. For the next generation, my kid's generation, it was the explosion of the Challenger. And probably for the current generation, it's 911. Every generation has a day they'll never forget, a day that's forever etched in their memories, a day to remember. Or maybe on the other hand, it's an exciting day to remember, a day you'll never forget. Maybe it's a day of graduation, maybe it's a day of a wedding, maybe it's a day when a baby was born, or maybe it's the multiple days LSU won national championships in the past. (laughs) Days you'll never forget and always remember, right? Days to remember. Um, Jim, go ahead and cue that video. Here's a video of some Russian guys that experienced a day that they will never forget—a day that they will remember all the days of their life. Watch this and uh, experience uh-huh. it. 150 uh-huh. Похоже не могут разъехаться. Мало места. бы сильно, пропустили бы Себе, а ну нафиг, да ладно. Хрена э, э, пацаны! Я, я снимаю! снимаю! Пацаны, успокой! That was a day to remember right there. Would you agree? Yeah. I I later found out that was a commercial. It was all a setup, but it's a great, great uh, experience. And so uh, all I'm saying is there are days that we'll never forget. Days we'll always remember. Days are forever etched in our memories. That's what happens in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is a day the disciples would never forget. It's a day that they would remember all of their lives. It was a day that uh, would speak volumes to them. The only miracle recorded in all four of the Gospels besides the resurrection of Christ. Let me say that again. The only miracle recorded in all four Gospels other than the resurrection is the feeding of the 5,000. So why is that so important? And what does it teach us about our Savior? And why is the walking on water miracle associated with that? And why is it next to it in the Scriptures? You remember John is writing to show us that Jesus is the Christos. He said many of the signs Jesus did, these are things that John chose to write where he wrote as he presented Christ as the Messiah. So why is this miracle so important to be recorded in all four gospels? What teaches us about our Savior and why the walking on water episode? It was a day they would never forget. Imagine these disciples. The day started and they were tired. People were coming to them over and over. They were coming to Jesus and he was performing signs. If you follow along in John's gospel, you could follow in any of them, but we're in John's gospel. If you follow along there, it says that uh, they crossed, he crossed the Sea of Galilee in verse one, a great multitude followed him because they saw signs, which he was performing on those who were sick. And Jesus went up a mountain and he sat with the disciples. The Passover of the Jews was at hand. So all day long, Jesus has given himself to the crowd one by one, unloading the burdens from their backs and placing them on his. And when we look at the other gospels, the day is drawing to the end. The Savior's hungry and so is the crowds. But there's a dilemma. There's no catering service to call. There's no H-E-B on the next block. There's no Walmart to send them to. There's no 7-Eleven to go find something to eat. And so they're in a dilemma because the crowd is hungry and they're not, there's not much. And so Jesus looked out of his eyes. He saw the multitude coming to him. And he said to Philip, where are we going to buy bread that they can eat? He felt, but we, we need some bread. And in fact, if you parallel Mark's Gospel, if you go to Mark's Gospel and look at it, Mark chapter 6, it says, Jesus seeing them as sheep without a shepherd felt compassion for them and he desired to feed them. And so what we see is at the end of a long day, our Savior looks upon the crowds and the scriptures teach us there are 5,000 men when you look at the parallel. So this would include the women and kids. It could be eight to 10,000 people here. And Jesus feels compassion upon them. They're hungry. There's no place to send and they can't go anywhere. The disciples and the other things, well, let's send them into the villages and find food. Can you imagine 5,000 plus people gone into little villages trying to find food? It just doesn't happen. And so Jesus is doing this and the scriptures tell us, look at verse six, he said this to Philip to test him because Jesus knew what he was going to do. So he looks at Philip and says, uh, Philip, uh, we need to buy bread so these people can eat. Philip does what most of us would do. He looks at the crowd he does a little math. He sharpens his pencil, and he realizes there's no way. He sharpens his pencil, does some calculations, and he says, Lord, 200 denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for everyone to receive a morsel." If you grew up in our family, a morsel is not enough to satisfy anybody. And he says, if they just get a morsel, if they just get a little taste, 200 days wages isn't going to feed 5,000 plus people. Yet We don't have enough Jesus to begin to even think that so Philip begins to calculate with, that, with his own probabilities of how this could happen. He concludes that the expenditure is too great beyond their budget. He puts this pencil down and it says it's impossible. It can't be done. It's impossible. It can't be done. We all have impossibilities, don't we? I mean, we all have impossibilities, things that we don't think can happen, and we, we all have those lists. Impossibilities, though, don't exist for the Word who was in the beginning with God, and the Word who was God, and the Word who became man. Impossibilities don't exist for him. This is the same Jesus who changed tap water into wine, who, who took a man with leprous spots, and cleansed him, who in the previous chapter that we studied saw a man who had been an invalid for 38 years and gave him new wheels, Right? And, and so, legs, if you don't get that. So, so, so the man begins to take up his mat and walk. And so what we see here is the same Jesus looks at this, not as an impossibility, but as a time to stretch the faith of his men. It's a test. It's a test so they would realize who he is and what he can do and what he can accomplish. He had just provided wine for all these people at this wedding feast. And for Jesus, a miracle is just the pocket change of heaven. That's all it is. It's it's reaching into his pocket and taking a little change and dropping it on folks. And so Philip, much like I would be, begins to calculate. 5,000 people, kids, wives. Uh, This is way too expensive, babe, for us to even think about. And so the next thing that happens, Andrew, Simon's Peter brother, Jesus, if you look at the parallel passage, Jesus sends them out to do a job. He says, you got to go find some food. And so Andrew comes back. Now, wouldn't you like to know what happened here? I mean, I, I, we don't know if Andrew goes to some little boy who sees a sack lunch and grabs it and runs. We don't know that. I, I mean, maybe, but more than likely, you know, hand, who's got lunch out there? This little kid's hand goes up and, and he's Jewish. Maybe he sold it to Andrew. We don't know. Andrew, you got a few denarii? <laughs> What we do know, they're barley loaves, and we know that wheat was the, the, the bread of those who had means. Barley was the bread of those who were poor. If five pieces of barley. It'd be like a little pita sandwich for us, a pita pocket, if you will. And he's got two fish. Now fish thin would be salted. This is not a bakery where you go in and help yourself and lamb chops to go with it. This is just a little. And from that little, Jesus is going to do a lot. From that little, Jesus is going to do a lot. And so Andrew comes up and he says, Lord, I've got five barley loaves and two fish, but look at what he says after that at the end of verse 9. But what are these for so many people? You can almost see Andrew shrugging his shoulders and saying, Lord, here's two fish, here's some loaves, but (laughs) what good is this? What good is this? What is this going to accomplish? And Jesus said, have them sit down. Scriptures say that uh, in a parallel gospel, they divide them up in the 50s and 100s. Hey, you, you can see Peter taking turns, You 50 over here, I want you over here. You 50 over here, back there. Uh, hey, sir, I said over here, okay? And the, the, these are Jewish people. I don't take orders from anybody. And you guys over here, you come this way. You back there, you go that way. And I mean, it had to be crazy. It had to be chaos. I mean, if we tried to order, we got probably about eight or 900 people in here right now. I tried to order you in groups of 50. You would say, Pastor Gary, uh, you, you've lost your senses. What are you thinking about? But what we see is Jesus puts them there and he begins to feed them. And I've often wondered what it was like for the disciples. Have you ever thought about this miracle? And what it was like, So Peter comes and he gets, a, he gets a tray of bread and he gets a tray of fish. Like we're going to do communion in a minute and we're going to have couples up here and somebody's going to have bread and somebody's going to have wine, but this is bread and fish. And he passed out to the first 50, and I don't know what the disciples are thinking. What are we going to do after this? They come back for more. They come back for more. They come back for more. And they come back for more. And they keep feeding and feeding and feeding. And it's unbelievable what happens. I mean, what we're talking about is the miracle here. We're talking about the miracle that Jesus performs of feeding the 5,000. Let me stop for a minute. You got any impossibilities in your life? I've got a couple. (laughs) You got any possibilities? Marriage that you think will never be made right again? A womb that's empty and will never get pregnant? A prodigal who's never going to come home? A disease that's never going to go away? A friendship that's never going to be mended. Relationship that's broken and never be healed. A spiritual life that's as dry as West Texas. And it's never going to quench your thirst. You know what the scriptures say about that? God is a God of possibilities, not impossibilities. In Jeremiah, the prophet says, Ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched storm. Nothing is too hard for you. Nothing. Later on, that same passage in Jeremiah, I am the Lord, the God of all mankind. Does he think too hard for me? Hey, if I need to feed 5,000 people, that's not a big deal. I need to mend a broken relationship, restore some health or a body or restore something that's been broken. That is not a big deal. I am the God of the universe. I spoke and the universe was created. Nothing is impossible with you. Now, does he always do that? No, he doesn't always do that. But is it possible with him? You bet it is. There are no impossibilities with him. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because what this teaches us as much as anything else is that we should be grateful because God can do a lot with just a little. Amen? He can take our little talents and do a lot with them. He can take our little gifts and do a lot with them. He can take our little offerings and do a lot with them. He can take whatever we have and make abundance out of it. So we see the miracle, we see what he does here, but it's interesting to look at the response to that miracle. I mean, all these things happen. It should give us great hope because of what, 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 what's done here. But look at the response. Look at verse 14 first. In verse 14, it says, When therefore the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is of a truth, the prophet who is to come into the world. If you write in your Bibles, underline the words, the prophet. Notice it's the prophet. It's not a prophet. It's, it's articular. That means there's an article in front of it. The. The prophet. Who in the world is the prophet? I mean, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. Their conclusion is this must be the prophet. Who is the prophet? Well, if we, you look back in your Bibles to John chapter 1, look at John chapter 1, verse 21. I'll put it on the screen in front of you. This is John the Baptist. They're talking to they come to John the Baptist, baptized in the wilderness, said, are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? go back to John 21, circle that, underline in your Bible too. It's the same question. Are you the prophet? John the Baptist says, no, I'm not. So the prophet's not Elijah. They were asking for Elijah. So who is the prophet they keep talking about? Well, if you were with us last week, we saw that the prophet is one who would be like Moses. At the end of chapter five, uh, he says, if you believe the word, he's telling the Jewish leaders, if you were with us last week, Christ defends his deity, he shows that he is the son of God. He is God. He is deity. And he calls five witnesses to stand. The first one is John the Baptist's testimony. The second one is the works that he does. The third one is God the Father. The fourth one is the scriptures. The trump card, you look at the end of John chapter five in your Bible, he says, if you believe the writings of Moses, you would believe that I am the one who is sent by the Father. You'd believe him. So he laid the trump card on the Jewish leaders because Moses was a hero. Moses was, he stood head and shoulders above anybody else in history because he was the one who received the law. And so when John the Baptist comes on the scene, they said, are you the prophet? Or are you the prophet? And we saw earlier, or we saw in John chapter six, they said, the miracle is here. He must be the prophet. He must be the one Moses talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 18, when Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. You See, in the first century, the Jews were anticipating the Messiah. They're also looking for the prophet. Some of them combine the two and we know that ultimately that is what it is. The one who's the Messiah was the prophet. His name is Jesus. So there was this expectation that one would come who's like Moses. The expectation, the Messiah expectation, this great one. And so when John the Baptist comes and people are coming to him and he's baptizing and they're seeing reformation take place and transformation take place, they ask the question, are you Elijah? He says, no, are you the prophet? And then they see this great miracle where he feeds the 5,000 and they say, ah, he must be the prophet. And so what we see is this association with him. And so we see that, uh, that he's saying, uh, maybe this is the prophet that Moses talked about. By the way, I think both these events, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on water go directly back to show that Jesus is greater than Moses to the Jewish people. And I get that from this passage the end of chapter five, we're talking about Moses, right? It's Moses who accused you. If you believe verse 46, if you believe Moses, you believe in me. Uh, notice when this takes place, look at verse four. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews was at hand. Who is the person most associated with Passover in the Old Testament? Talk to me. Moses. Moses is the one who went and did all the, 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 the plagues before Pharaoh, Right. Moses, the one who stood there, and the final plague was a plague of Passover. Moses the one associated with that. Moses, Moses led many people out of bondage. Jesus was leading people on this day. Moses went up to a mountain. Look at what happens in verse 3. Jesus went up on a mountain. And he sat with his disciples. So Moses led many people. Jesus was leading many people. Moses went up to a mountain. Jesus went up to a mountain. That um, He performed, why are they following him? Look at verse two. They saw the signs he was doing performing on those who were sick. They're following because of signs. He did. Why did the nation of Israel follow Moses in Exodus? Because of the signs he was doing. And so Jesus is showing, hey, you revere Moses. If you understood Moses, this all points to me as being greater Moses. This all points to me as being even greater than the one that you revere. Moses could not provide manna for you. He was God's instrument to tell you about manna. I've just fed 5,000 people with the manna that I have produced. Not only that, Jesus would tie this miracle, and we're only doing part of John chapter 6, and it's too bad, really. We're going to pick this up next week. I'll preach on the resurrection, and the week after we'll come back and get John chapter 6. Because I want you to go down and look at what Jesus says. I'm dropping down to verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread out of heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it's not Moses who's given you bread out of heaven, but it's my father who gives you bread out of heaven. For the bread of heaven is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said to them, you want bread? Bread comes from heaven. Jesus says, look at verse 35. I'm the bread of life. Hey, Moses, depend upon the Father for manna day by day. God sent the manna day by day. I want you to know God sent me as manna for you. And when you eat of this bread, you shall never hunger and thirst again. Jesus is saying, hey, Moses was great, but I'm greater. Jesus uses this to teach his disciples and the people about who he is. And then when they're done with this miracle, after everybody has eaten, look at verse 11. Jesus therefore took the loaves, distributed those who were seated. Likewise also, I've always wondered if those who weren't seated didn't get to eat when I read that, but I would have sat down real quickly. Likewise, also the fish as much as they wanted. Stranger strange what goes through your mind sometimes when you study the Scriptures. And when they filled, he said to them, gather up the fragments, so nothing will be lost, which was a Jewish custom. you didn't throw leftovers away. When then it says, they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. 12 baskets, 12 baskets, 12 baskets. How many disciples were there? Not a trick question. 13? 12. Each guy comes forward with a basket. Hey Jesus, we, we just gave him a buffet of fish and chips. This isn't like the Chinese buffets in town where you get a, you know all kinds of different things. It's just fish and bread. And look at the leftovers. How many tribes were there in the nation of Israel? Twelve disciples, twelve tribes. Eat all you want. Because I'm the bread of life and can supply for you. I can do a lot with just a little. I can do a lot with just a little. And I think Jesus is saying, I am sufficient. In fact, we know it. He says it in the bread of life discourse, the verses we just read in verse 35 and 36. If you eat and drink of me, if you eat and drink of me, you'll be satisfied. So the response, first of all, is this response of he must be the prophet. But there's a second response. Look at verse 15. Jesus, therefore, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, withdrew again to the mountain to be alone. Jesus perceived that they were ready to make him king. I mean, this is an amazing event. It's an incredible moment. They plant, the, the, the word goes out in the crowd. Look at what he does. Look at who he is. He can do these great things. He he can free us. He can become our king. He provides for us. He heals us. He can do everything. He is our protector. He's our provider. He's our rescuer from Rome. We can do this. Let's make him our king right now. And look at the humility of Jesus. He slips away so it wouldn't happen. You see, what Jesus knew is that the cross came before the crown. What Jesus knew It's the same thing he knew he went in the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan's trying to incarnate him at that time and say, you are the king, you can have all these things, but the Savior resisted the crown that was offered by Satan in the wilderness, he refused the one being offered to him. Now, he doesn't want to go out on the shoulders of the people and say, he's our king because he can work signs and he can feed us. But Jesus wants to become the broken bread of life so he can forgive us. Do you see the difference? He won't be a king by the acclamation of the people. He won't be a king because he forgives. And so the bread of life goes to the cross to be broken. In a few moments, we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. When you dip that matzah cracker into that juice, and you hold it or you take it back to your seat or you take it right there. Whatever you want to do. Jesus is saying, be satisfied with me. You got an impossibility? Something you think can't be overcome? I'm going to quench the greatest longing of your soul and the greatest hunger you can ever have. And it's in the heart. And as Jesus does this? He provides for them in an amazing way. He feeds the five thousand, and Jesus provides. He's greater than Moses. One of my prophets at seminary was a guy named Howard Hendricks. I mean, to Jesus, providing is nothing. No wedding at the wine, no problem. No food in the wilderness, no problem. No life in the tomb. We're going to look at next week. No problem. I, I can overcome those things. It's easy to be like Philip and start calculating. It's easy to be like Andrew and shrug our shoulders and say this can't happen. Prof. Hendrick shared a story in his book, Heaven Help the Home. It's about a Dallas Seminary couple. They were a young couple. They had four boys. They had, didn't have much money. The oldest boy, uh, or the middle boy, was seven years old. And they prayed together as a family. They kept a prayer journal. And one night he came and said, I haven't had a new shirt in a long time. Do you think we could start praying for a shirt? And so the dad said yes. The mom wrote it in the prayer, in the nightly prayer journal. And so they started praying for their son Timmy, a size 7 shirt, real specific. They prayed for several weeks, and Prof. Hendricks knew the story, and one day a clothier, a friend of Prof. Hendricks in downtown Dallas, um, was changing seasons, and he called Prof. Hendricks and says, hey, I happen to have uh, some things on clearance I'm willing to give to seminary students if uh, you know anybody with a need. So uh, he asked what he had, and he said, well, actually, mostly what I have are shirts, boy shirts. So Prof. Hendricks called the lady, and she went down to the clothier the into clothier his store in downtown Dallas, and... Uh, he said, I'm really sorry, all I have were 12 shirts left. Uh, other folks have come to get them. And She said, what sizes are they? He said, I'm sorry, I just have one size, size seven. <laughs> Very wise parents at night. They got the other three boys, and it came time to pray for Timmy's shirt. They said, we don't have to pray for that shirt anymore. I said, what do you mean? And the oldest son went out and got a shirt and put it on the dining room table, and the next one right under Timmy went and got it, and the youngest one came and got it, and there were 12 shirts on the dining room table, and Prof. Hendricks writes in his book, Heaven Help the Home. He says, the, the father said Timmy's eyes were white as saucers when he saw 12 shirts sitting on the table, all for him. He says, I can tell you this, Prof. Hendricks says, There's a kid named Timmy in downtown, or who lives in Dallas, Texas, who, thanks God, went in the shirt business that day. What about you? an impossibility, quit trusting God for? He can do a lot with a little. The next episode is Jesus walking on water. I mean, Jesus says, hey, Mo- Moses gave you some manna and- I'm going to feed 5,000, but I've got greater man than that. I'm going to give you the bread of life. And so the other thing Moses is known for is what? When the Egyptians fled, I mean, when the Israelites fled the Egyptians, the Egyptians were coming behind them. What was in front of them? The Red Sea. And how'd they get through there? Moses holds up his staff. They walk, as scriptures say, on dry ground. Jesus comes walking on water as though it is what? Dry ground. And I believe what he's showing here, hey, I, I'm, I, Moses did one thing. I, I'm going to show you that God can do this through me if you just trust me. I, I, I am greater than Moses. He went to led the nation through dry ground. I, I can lead you through dry ground as well. I love, I love this story. I read about there was a kid who went to Sunday school and the dad asked him on the way home, driving back from church, he said, what'd you learn today? in Sunday school. He said, well, we learned about how Moses went behind enemy lines to rescue the Jews from the Egyptians. Moses ordered the engineers to build a pontoon bridge. After the people crossed, he sent bombers back to blow up the bridge and the Egyptian tanks were following them. Father said, did your teacher really tell you that? He said, no, but if I told you what she taught me, you'd never believe it. (laughs) Feed 5,000 people, walk on water. You believe that? Miracles from heaven are like pocket change to the God of heaven. Just reach us in his pocket. I don't need 300 denarii. Let's just feed him. The disciples are headed out and he says, I'll meet you on the other side. Little do they know the other side he met him on was as he walked across the water. Matthew tells about Peter jump, you know, jumping out the boat and walking on water too, and when he looked at the wind and waves, he sank. The most important thing from John, remember John has a purpose here. What's John's purpose? John's purpose is to tell us uh, the miracles there, but John's purpose is very clear. He says, there are other things Jesus did, but I'm recording these things in my book to show you that Jesus is the Christos, the Messiah, the Son of God, and believing you can have life in his name. And, you know, the people there thought Moses was the greatest. He's their hero, and he's saying, I want you to know I'm greater than Moses. Not only that, I can satisfy your hunger and your thirst. I'm the bread of life. And not only that, I I, I can do even greater than Moses did. He parted the ways. I can walk on water. But the issue is not me walking on water. It's proving that I am who I claim to be. The response, I love the response recorded in Matthew's Gospel. It says this, Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, Saying, truly, he's a son of God. You look at the parallel passage: Jesus walking on water. This is how the response is. He's a son of God. You bet he is. Jesus is our protector as well. He provides through the feeding of five thousand. He protects. They're in the midst of a storm, and you look at the parallel gospel it doesn't say in John, but they're in the midst of a storm, and Jesus comes out and protects his guys. My conclusion is Jesus is our provider, our protector, and our rescuer. He's also our rescuer. We see that over and over in the scriptures, we see it in the bread of life episode here. We see that he provides for us. And by the way, it's a good time for me to pause and say thank you for providing, providing for the needs of TBC, providing for our family, providing for our staff. Through your giving right now, that conference just took place in the Ukraine. 20% of our budget from general fund goes there. You've provided for 10 full-time pastoral staff, eight administrative assistants, multiple part-time people, $10 million worth of buildings in the last three years. Your generosity has provided all that stuff. And I would be remiss if I didn't say thank you for being Jesus' hands and feet in providing. And he's our protector. He protects us. Does he always heal? No, he doesn't. Does he always bring things back together? No, he doesn't. But he is the one who can do that. And we we believe that from the depths of our heart. By faith, we walk and we see these things. But ultimately, he's our rescuer. He's our rescuer. And we see that he's our rescuer because he becomes the broken bread of life. See, what Moses did was lead the nation of Israel out of bondage. He led his people out of bondage from another people. What Jesus does is he leads his people out of bondage as well. He leads us out of the bondage of sin. And so we're going to conclude our service by honoring the bread of life, Jesus. And you're going to take a cracker and dip it in some juice. You go back to your seat or take it here, whatever you want to do. And you're going to realize he has provided you with everything to satisfy your hunger, and to quench your thirst. And we celebrate Jesus, our protector, our provider, our rescuer. Father, we thank you. Thank you for eternal hope and eternal life. Thank you for the bread of life, Jesus. Thank you for the one who has broken our behalf. Thank you, one who gave his life so we could have life. Thank you, the one who was innocent and became guilty so we could be freed. Thank you as we partake of this bread and this juice. It's a reminder. It's a reminder of, him, of, of our Savior who came and didn't want to be a king, but he wanted to go to the cross so we could have the bread of life and have forgiveness. Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 11, Let a man examine himself and then let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Would you take a moment, first of all, making sure Jesus is your Savior. That you trusted the bread of life for the forgiveness of sin. If you've done that, then then make sure your heart is right before him. Jesus, the bread of life. Take a moment. Prepare your heart to receive the Lord's table.